Hi, and welcome to the 23rd Womanthology podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton, and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas, and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. The theme of the show today is Women in Robotics and Artificial Intelligence. I'll be speaking with Alona Shatri, Artificial Intelligence and Music PhD researcher. Alona shares her research into using AI to work on optical music recognition. She also talks about the ethics of AI, the risk of deep fakes, and the need for the law to stay one step ahead as technology evolves at a phenomenal pace. We will also be hearing from Inesh Santos, Womanthology's Associate Editor, who's going to be talking us through the written stories in the new issue. A quick reminder that you sign up for the Womanthology newsletter by filling in your details on the front page of our website, womanthology.co.uk. You can also join our new LinkedIn community by visiting linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash womanthology and find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Welcome to the Womanthology podcast. We are joined by Ilona Shatri, who is an artificial intelligence and music PhD researcher. How are you doing today, Ilona? I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm very excited to be speaking with you to learn some more about your story, what you work on. So looking forward to it. Are you ready to chat? I'm sure. So Ilona, please can you tell us about your educational background and career to date? I was born in Kosovo, which is in the Balkans in Europe. And I lived here until I finished my undergrad in electrical and computer engineering. I was studying telecommunications. During that time, I also was working for an NGO and promoting digital rights, dealing with artificial intelligence, data privacy. Also, it included research, data analysis, and visualization. So after that, I moved to Taiwan for two years to pursue a master's degree in information systems and application. During this time, I was part of a lab researching a wide collection of research problems. I was working in fake news recognition using graph theory. When I was very young, I knew that I wanted to do research for a prolonged time. And the best path to do that was pursuing a PhD. So I started doing uh, a PhD in Queen Mary University of London in artificial intelligence and music. So now I'm at the end of the second year of my PhD. Wow. And so what does it involve? And if we were trying to imagine you on a daily basis, what would we imagine you doing? Oh, you would imagine me sitting long hours using a bunch of servers online, trying to process all the data and getting frustrated. But at the same time, this work is really satisfying when you get some nice results, when the computer starts doing things on, on their own, when they actually learn. So my line of work is artificial intelligence and music. So I'm working on a problem that is very old, but people started working on this project somewhere like uh, 60 years ago. It's called optical music recognition. To comprehend this problem a little bit more, I will clarify what these terms mean and what are the main methods and how do we see it in the future. So most of us have probably used Google Translate at some point. It's a camera translation feature 
So by just taking a picture of a text, we save time and avoid learning languages learn, like because we don't know how to type this. So now let us think of how this feature would apply to music. Musicians will write um, in music sheets or blank paper. However, if they want to share their music, they will have to transcribe it into a computer. A computer readable music file would be more accessible. Therefore, for example, people would be able to play that sheet of music by just taking a picture. You don't even need to know how to read music yourself. So the, the computer would do all, all your job and just start playing, or you can then uh, share it with other people. You can modify, you can add uh, other voices, other instruments, see how it sounds. If it's a piano, if it's a guitar. And optical music recognition or AMR would also assist in other uh, types of music information retrieval, which is a very huge research field, in fact. So it will help in creating digital libraries, archiving musical heritage, in creating a more accessible way of archiving things. Let's say, for instance, that there are some sheet music that Beethoven wrote many years ago, but now we just archive it by taking the picture, but that's just a digital copy, nothing more. It cannot be played. But by doing this, we can also play that and save it in a better way, let's say, that is more accessible to other people. Wow. Now, for people on the podcast, they can't actually see my my jaw dropping open. I'm just fascinated by AI and the things it can do and the applications it's got. It's absolutely amazing. This is your second year? Yeah, yeah, at the end of my second year. And how many years do we think you'll be? It's called a college doctoral PhD, which is four-year PhD. We have funding for four years. There are other types of PhD which are sponsored for three years. So it depends what kind of program you're funded by. Sure. So is that different than the machine learning demonstrator role? Uh, during our PhDs, we're expected to also teach a little bit. So we get used to this academic stuff. So we do it voluntarily. We choose which courses we want to be demonstrating for. In my case, I chose to demonstrate for three courses, machine learning, research methods, and innovation. And the other one was machine learning data visualization, which is an intersection. So what demonstration usually includes is you have a professor who's the main teacher of the course, and they will usually explain the theory uh, behind the topics and then we would have uh, demonstration hours, lab hours, where we would have a problem and try to solve with, this, with the students. And then we would also be grading the students, discussing assignments with the students, creating new projects. But because of COVID, I didn't have to do it live. Since I started, I only had five months where we could go to the office and the rest was from home. So we would uh, do demonstrating as well online. Uh-huh. Did that change the dynamic at all? Oh, it definitely did change the teaching dynamic. It's very different. You don't get a sense how much the students are understanding. And there are students who are taken back a little bit, so they don't ask as many questions as they would if it was happening live it's harder to read people's expressions exactly you're yeah. looking at lots of different people on a screen at the time we're not well. looking at all of them because usually all the cameras would be turned off so <laughs> and in terms of predictions for the way ai might change our lives moving forward it strikes me there's so many 
opportunities for AI, and it is already starting to have an impact, but if you were to map out an AI future that's not science fiction-y, what would you imagine us doing? How might things change without putting pressure on you to predict the future? That's a very good question because people, when you mention AI, we, we got this sense of ending the world, AI taking over the world. To focus more on my field, artificial intelligence and music, how did they work together and how they're working and what we expect to change and how does it actually uh, affect us as humans, as a social being. We usually attribute the advances of artificial intelligence and music to the last decade, but actually how it started is AI-generated music, which dates back to the 1950s. Uh, That is very surprising. So we might have heard of Alan Turing. Yeah, everyone knows Alan Turing uh, and the importance he had in the code-breaking during World War II. So what we don't know is that he also made the earliest known machine-generated music. Turing played and recorded three melodies in National Anthem, God Save the King at the time, the nursery rhyme, Baba Black uh, Sheep, and the Glenn Miller song In the Mood. So fast forward to the 90s, a theory professor from the University of Oregon trained a machine to compose in the style of Bach. The audience that listened to the piece could not really tell the difference between it and the genuine Bach piece. So it's mind-blowing to know that 30 years ago, these things had already happened. But nowadays, AI's application in music field is not limited to music generation. It is widely used in every music platform, performance, digital sound processing, audio mastering, interactive scores, recommendation systems are a big thing, smart speakers, and so on. One of the applications that we use it annoyingly is the recommendation systems and music platforms. Every day, there are about 20,000 new tracks uploaded on Spotify, and that is mind-blowing. AI becomes critical to sort all the new content out so the systems are good enough and the listeners keep coming back and listening to the music in these platforms. Even though the systems are very good at filtering, at the same time, they have, let's say, a bad effect because they create a filtered bubble. This is the phenomenon where individual listeners are encapsulated in an echo chamber of their preferences, biases, and ideas. So making it not easy for them to experience new music or just getting new ideas for music. So given enough data, we can train AI to help us in a wide variety of areas. Today, we can already see AI in tasks, which seems very very simple, such as working with images and applying a style of um, painter, such as Van Gogh, and more complex tasks, such as reading thousands of pages from legal documents to aid lawyers. I believe the biggest help from AI will come in resource uh, intensive tasks in which a human might make an error reading thousands of pages or looking at thousands of images. While people are worried that AI will take our jobs, I'd say that is not completely true. It's not true at all, actually. It just shifts jobs. People who would have been working as a cashier could now be an engineer who gets paid even more. So we evolve with the science in parallel. For instance, uh, in arts, human will have more freedom to explore creative tasks while AI can do lesser creative tasks. So you can't really tell what's the future, but we just know that we will evolve with the science and with AI. Wow. There's an app where it puts you in movies. That's deep fakes. As good as it sounds, it's very bad as well. 
yeah. people have been using it for bad things. There was this case where an ex-boyfriend takes a porn video and puts his ex-girlfriend's face into it and then shares it with his friends and stuff. That's terrible. There's also cheap fakes. There was a Nancy Pelosi in the US. They slowed down her voice, so it sounded like she was slurring her words. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Or you can have Obama say things you want to say. That's quite frightening, though, isn't it? The, the thing is that we are evolving, as I said, with science. But the other thing is that the legal system should be something that foresees these things and is one step ahead. But in fact, it's not even in parallel. It's one step behind. And when technology is coming to the world, people are starting using it. And then the legal systems start seeing what are the consequences. Why is diversity of thought so important? Lack of diverse thoughts brings us to lack of diversity in AI and the tools. If researchers, engineers who are working and creating the new technology is not diverse, they will design technology that is only for that group of people with that demographic. Uh, bias can be carried intentionally or unintentionally. So they design something they are most familiar with. But there, then there is data. Existing tools are a product of training in specific data sets. So if these data sets do not show enough diversity, the tool is also biased. So it comes down to having diversity in people and thoughts that actually matters. Because if you have diverse thoughts, these people can look at this data differently, can see what lacks, what type of diversity lacks. And I could say the people could be the eyes of these blind tools. As many people would have probably seen on the news, there are, uh, for example, face recognition AI tools that have shown not to work so well with non-white people. Uh, this is a bias that was inserted in the AI model due to only using images of white people during the training. This type of error, uh, while probably not intentional, could be uh, averted if the team was more diverse and realizing that there is a problem of bias uh, because diverse people could look for their own demographic in this type of data so it comes down to having diverse people in this in this field would you say you've noticed ai getting more diverse people are talking about it i think that's an important step we're thinking about it let's see yeah absolutely in terms of advice for girls and women that might be interested in careers in ai but they just don't know where to start because it's so broad, what what would your advice be to them? So for me, it was a good flow going from one thing to the other. I just build up that path, but I understand for some people it might come later in life. So just don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to talk to women that inspire you or to try new stuff that are so unfamiliar to you. There are dozens, if not hundreds of AI courses online. There is not a unique path to follow that one size fits them all. You also don't need to exclusively have a background in computer science. For example, as my background was not um, computer science, it was electrical engineering, telecommunications. Multiple areas can coexist. And if your major is very different, for example, from computer science, in life science or language, remember that you can switch fields and your different background will inspire you to have different opinions and ideas, and in fact, help your research a lot. For instance, my colleagues had studied music before, and then in their PhD, they jumped to something very computer science-y as artificial intelligence, but artificial intelligence in music. 
So all their knowledge of music is a really big asset now to our groups. And the same with, for example, languages, there is a lot of research, maybe half of uh, the research in AI is towards natural language processing, understanding how to translate languages better, how to understand stories better and all this type of stuff. So if you aren't sure where to start, you can start with free online courses or tutorials and see where that takes you. Maybe you can find a course that is cheap in websites like Udemy, or you can apply to a scholarship on Coursera. I used to do this a lot. I used to take free courses on Coursera, which in fact would cost hundreds of dollars. But if you apply for scholarships and give a reason that you want to learn, that is really easy to get. And if you find that you really like the area, you can even apply then to university programs. So like I said, there are many paths you can follow and get to where you want to be. Sure. There's a really good website, UK-based, which is FutureLearn, and that's massive online open courses. Some free stuff, there's some premium offer there as well, but just to be able to try something out and to understand the things that interest you and the things that you want to do more of. Exactly, yeah. And and in terms of what's coming up next for you, what, what are you looking forward to? What are you excited about? So I'm really excited to continue working on my problem even after I finish my PhD, hopefully. So I'm working in partnership with Steinberg, which is part of Yamaha. So I want in the end to have something that is usable, that people can use and be part of their platforms, but continue working on it, exploring even more. I'm afraid to get away from my research problem, really. <laughs> it's much exciting as it is. It's also sad to know that maybe one day I'll have to leave it. You must get so wrapped up in thinking about it all the time. The world evolves <laughs> around that research problem, yeah. Yeah, so maybe another PhD in the future? Oh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I'm excited to continue uh, working in the research world, even if it continues being an industry. It's very nice that industry also is open to research more. They're, uh, they're very keen to invest more in their research teams or sponsoring students to take PhDs in these type of things. So also keep an eye on big companies who are trying to be socially responsible and yeah just funding new PhDs and master degrees so keep an eye on that. Ilona Shatri thank you so much for being our very special guest on the Womanthology podcast today. Uh, Thank you very much it was a very lovely conversation. Hey, my name is Ines Santos. I am the Associate Editor of Womanphology and I am here to tell you about our new issue, Women in Robotics and Artificial Intelligence. The stories include Dr. Carlotta Berry, Professor in Electrical and Computer Engineering at Rose Holman Institute of Technology, shares her experiences of work both in academia and industry. Carlotta also talks about the diversity problem in engineering and AI and the ways she has brought her networks together to create a call to action for anti-racism. 
Dr. Caitlin Bentley, lecturer in AI-enabled information systems at the University of Sheffield, shares her career path from volunteering in Morocco to Mozambique to working at the Australian Free A Institute. She also explains her contribution to an initiative called Women Reclaiming AI, which is creating a conversational AI chatbot. We also hear from Dr. Manisha Ball, radiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, who explains how in the domain of breast imaging, an AI algorithm can teach itself what a breast cancer looks like. She also tells us about the AI algorithm she is developing to help women make more informed decisions about breast cancer treatment. Dr. Iris Kramer, the founder of Arc AI, introduces us to her company that uses AI models to help locate archaeological sites. She explains how automation can help archaeologists find unexplored archaeological sites in far-flung places around the world. Joe Eckersley tells us about her company Bubble, a mobile marketing platform that uses artificial intelligence. Joe shares what it is like running a tech business and considers why it's still regarded as unusual for a woman, especially an older woman, to be a tech founder despite women being among the first programmers in the early 20th century. And that is all from me. Sadly, that's all we have time for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share the link with the show on social media and also subscribe. Your feedback is really important, so please do rate and review the show in your podcast app. That's all for now, but join us in the next episode, which is about men as allies.